Father, I thank you for the time of worship that we've had here this morning. It was really refreshing for me to look around, and at least in the first few rows here, to see people very much engaged with you and uh, giving their hearts and their minds to you and preparing themselves, hopefully, for our time now in your word. God, I pray that as we uh, look at just one simple but penetrating question of Jesus, a twofold question, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I pray, God, that uh, you might have that penetrate our hearts and our minds and that, Lord, we would understand it rightly, even the implications of it, and then, Lord, not be afraid to apply the answers to our lives. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's really easy to uh, do an intro on fear because fear is one thing that is absolutely universal to every single person in the world and surely to every single person in this worship center here this morning. It's common to all of us. All of us have experienced fear in our lives. And I don't care how tough or hard-shelled you might be in your life or what kind of demeanor you put forth to the people around you, all of us can and should own this morning that we know what it's like to fear. And so as a result of this, the list of things that we fear is endless. We fear things like job loss, our children's future, economic downturns, spousal rejection, loss of health, embarrassing situations. We fear pain, God, crime, others, dying, loss of control, change. And those are just the normal things, by the way. Then you got all those irrational fears, right? I mean, things that maybe not everybody would struggle with fearing, but for you personally, it's a heightened fear. And it's an, and it's an irrational fear. I was driving down I-17 about a year ago with a uh, pastor from the area. We'd been doing a speaking gig, and uh, we were driving right there by Sunset Rest Stop. And as we were coming down over the rim there, I, uh, I, I said to him, I said, hey, I've got to use the restroom. Let's stop here. And he, he looked over at me, and he said, you use rest stop restrooms? And I said, yeah, like all the time. And he, he goes, you don't allow your kids to use those restrooms too, do you? And I said, yeah. I said, like, where do you go when you're traveling? And... And and I kid you not, he goes, well, McDonald's? And I thought, McDonald's? Like, that's cleaner than a rest stop? You know, what's next, Arby's? I'm like, going, that's that's not rational. I I mean, none of those places are really clean, but, you know, wash your hands. And and, and he was adamant that we would not stop at any public rest stop. We had to go only to um, McDonald's. And I said to myself, you're weird. That is not a normal fear. I said, that's a strange fear. And, and, And yet... Truth be known, I got fears like that too, don't you? I got fears that when people look at them, they go, well, that's not really a normal fear. We, we all got fears, every one of us. And what tells us as well that fear is so absolutely universal to the human experience is how much fear you read in this book, the Bible. I mean, you look closely, folks, at the Bible, and you will see fear plastered on almost every page. You will find fear of miracles, fear of God's presence, fear of Jesus, fear of inner exposure of the heart, fear of war, fear of others, fear of persecution, fear of rejection, fear of financial loss, fear of death, fear of messing up, fear of failure, fear of purposelessness, fear of being hurt. I mean, the Bible is like one big anthology of fear. It's all over the place. And that simply tells us that in our fallen state, fear is going to be the name of the game in our experience many times. And so as we're looking at these questions that Jesus asked, we'd be very remiss not to look at one of the few questions that he asked directly about fear. And we're simply going to look at the one where he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? 
So I want us to read about one of these accounts in which he asks this question. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 4, uh, beginning, or yeah, Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. We'll also put the scripture up here on the screen. Listen to what the story says. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, he meaning Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, the disciples, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, this is obviously a story between Jesus and his disciples here. It happens very early on in Jesus' ministry. They had just all come together. And it's a very, very descriptive story, even though to you it seems kind of short. If you were to read Matthew's version of this story or Luke's version of this story, it would be even more truncated without any of the detail that Mark gives us. One of the reasons Mark gives us a lot of detail here is because he's trying to communicate to us that this is an historical account. It really happened and that we need to latch on to the details of this to get the most out of it. And so to do that, I want you to notice with me about five different movements in this story. We're going to go through this rather quickly, but it's important to to latch on to each one of these handles. Give me a click here, guys. Five different movements that you see when you look close at the story, and they are the boat, the storm, the miracle, the question, and the response. If you can latch on to those five handles, then we're going to talk about a couple of things that this teaches us. You're going to understand some things about your fear and your Savior, Jesus. The boat, the storm, the miracle, the question, and the response. So let's begin by unpacking these movements, and it all begins with the boat. The boat. Look again at verses 35 and 36. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, the disciples, took with them, took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, we know from verse 1 in this chapter that Jesus is on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee and that he's already in a boat. And the reason that he's in a boat is because the crowd was so large that as he was trying to teach them, they had to put him in a boat, push it a little bit offshore so that he could see everybody and address everybody. And so when it says that he had, that after he was done teaching, like teaching all day long, that he took off for the other side of the shore just as he was, that simply means in the same boat. In the same setting that he had been in, they just shoved, pulled up anchor, shoved the boat off, and headed over to the western shore. And now the cool thing is about a story like this is that we know almost precisely where this took place. We know in what part of the Sea of Galilee, the northwest shore, it's not that big of a sea. And we can show you with pictures exactly what we're talking about. Give me a click here, guys. So when I was in Israel a couple of years ago, I was right at that spot where we call it the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus, one of the areas right near there, had given his famous Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm sitting there on the Sermon on the Mount. That's the left picture there for you. And that's the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see that this large lake or sea goes over to the other side there. 
That's the setting that Jesus was in at this point. Or another vantage point is a few miles south along the western shore. And the picture to the right is another beautiful picture of the Sea of Galilee. You, you get the idea that it was a pretty wide sea. The kind of sea that would be open to storms, as we'll see in a minute. But this is the original setting that Jesus sets for us here. And it says that they took a boat across this sea. Now, let me tell you what's most fascinating about this. You're going to like this. In 1986, during a severe drought in Galilee, when the water level was like really low, a couple of fishermen found a very old wood boat buried in the mud. And upon further study using modern dating techniques, they found that this boat dated to just about the time of Jesus, anywhere between 120 B.C. and 40 A.D. In other words, the fishing boat that they found and that is now in a museum in Galilee, you can see the picture there behind me, I took a picture of it, this fishing boat that they found is very similar, if not identical, to the boat that Jesus would have used in crossing the sea in this account that we're looking at. And so you can see from the pictures that it's about 27 feet long, about 8 feet wide, could have accommodated a sail and some oars, and hold about 15 people. Like, hint, Jesus and all of his 12 disciples. And so you'll see a recreation of that boat on the right there. That's from the ESV Study Bible. And you can start to get a picture, combined with the pictures I showed you before, of this opening scene of Jesus sitting in the stern of this boat there with a cushion there as they crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Don't miss this, folks. Mark is giving us a true historical account with lots of detail so that in our mind's eye we can picture this scene to be set up for what happens next. And that leads us to the second movement of this story called the storm. Look at verse 37. It says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, here's what you need to know about the geography of that area that would make this great windstorm not an unusual thing. I put a picture there again behind me. This is from the western shore now, looking over to the east. And you'll notice that the Sea of Galilee sits in kind of a basin. In fact, it's 696 feet below sea level. That's really low. It's just in a basin there. But 30 miles to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, I'm sorry, the northwest, sits Mount Hermon at 9,200 feet above sea level. And so what happens is as the weather patterns move through, great downdrafts of wind come off Mount Hermon, hit the Sea of Galilee, and can create very uh, immediate and violent thunderstorms on the Sea of Galilee, especially in the late afternoon. And this is what was happening in that day with Jesus. In fact, that phrase, great windstorm here in verse 37, in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, can actually be translated hurricane, which simply tells us that they experienced a huge storm. And you've got to remember, folks, that these people were fishermen, at least three or four of the disciples, which means like they were used to, to some whackers of storms, that wasn't in my nose. I don't know where that word came from. But they were, they were used to some huge storms. And the reality is, is that they wouldn't be thrown by 5 or 10 mile per hour winds and a few feet of waves. And so this was one huge storm, the perfect storm, if you will, that they experienced. And so notice what happens next, the third movement, the miracle. Verses 38 and 39. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they, the disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. 
Now, one of the first things we need to recognize here is that Jesus is sleeping in the middle of this storm. Do we all understand that would not be a usual response to a storm like this? I mean, he's sleeping. He's in an open bow boat. There's this perfect violent storm going on, and Jesus is sleeping. And a lot of the Bible experts, the commentators, wrestle with exactly why he might be sleeping, because we're not told why he is sleeping. So some suggest that maybe he's exhausted from teaching all day long and is the kind of guy that could sleep through anything. Others suggest that, you know, maybe that cushion that Mark mentions was so comfortable that he couldn't help but fall asleep. They actually do suggest that. But then others suggest what I think is probably more the case, and that is that this is part of the story here, is that Jesus, being the incarnate Son of God, completely and fully connected to the Father, is showing, demonstrating to us here, that it's possible to have peace, so much so that you can sleep in the midst of storms. In other words, he's got nothing to worry about. He's God. He's God come in the flesh. And though he hasn't revealed that yet, it would be part and parcel of his nature to be able to sleep in the midst of storms. It doesn't, the text doesn't tell us that's why, but I think that might exactly be why. And so they woke him as they're panicking. He's sleeping, they're panicking. They woke him, and using sarcasm as their tool, they say, don't you care that we might all die? That's fascinating. Jesus doesn't respond to their sarcasm. He says nothing to them at this point. In fact, the only thing he does is speak to the wind and he speaks to the sea and he gives three words in the imperative tense. He says, peace, be still. And with immediate immediate and absolute obedience, the storm listens and stops to the point that there is what Mark calls a great calm. Folks, the definition of a miracle is that which defies natural law with immediate and permanent results. Lots of things you see today on TV that people claim to be miracles aren't really miracles. Because for a miracle to be a miracle, it needs to go against natural law, could not happen naturally so, with immediate and permanent results. And this is an example of a biblical miracle. This was not just some change in the weather pattern that Jesus happened to capitalize on. There's no evidence of that in the text. No, this is him defying natural law as the incarnate Son of God, with immediate and permanent results. It's a bona fide miracle. And yet, interestingly, with that done, Jesus does not focus on his own miracle. I mean, he's God. He does those things all the time. No, he's more focused at this point with the state of the disciples' hearts and minds. And so he immediately moves on to this twofold question that's before us today. It's the fourth movement in the story. Look at verse 40. It says, And he, Jesus, said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Don't miss this, folks. Jesus pits fear against faith. Their human-based fear with divinely commanded faith. He puts the two right side by side each other and then contrasts them. And this will be the whole point of this story here. That somehow you and I can also put fear against faith and have faith win out. We'll see how that works here in a few minutes. But don't miss that that's exactly what Jesus does here. And also don't miss that when he asks, have you still no faith, he's not referring to general 21st century who cares about the object kind of faith. No, he's referring to faith in the saving power of God released in and through himself. It's faith in Jesus that Jesus is after. He's basically saying, do you have faith at all in me and my ability to rule 
and govern your life and especially this circumstance. It's very important, folks, that you see this. We'll get back to it in just a minute. But first, notice the last movement of this New Testament account, what we're going to call the response. Look at how it wraps up in verse 41. It says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now you've got to see the humor in this. I mean, Jesus miraculously calms the storm and then chastises the disciples for their fear of the storm and their corresponding lack of faith. And what is their response to the miracle and chastisement? More fear. <laughs> More fear. Is that not like human nature? You tell your kid enough cookies, don't have any more cookies before dinner, and the next thing he or she does is get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, right? And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, look, you guys shouldn't be afraid of this. As we'll see in a minute, I'm God. Recognize who I am. I can have control over your life. I can help you here. You have no reason to be afraid. And the first thing they do is they have more fear. In fact, those two words, more fear, in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in are the Greek words megas phobos where we get our words mega and phobia from. It simply means it's a great fear. Suggesting, by the way, that it was more fear than their original fear of the storm. (laughs) And in fairness, they kind of had reason to be afraid. Because this is only Mark chapter 4. They don't realize who Jesus really is, meaning the Christ, the Son of the living God, till chapter 8. And so it's right in this chapter here that they're starting to realize that we're dealing with just more than we're dealing with more than a man here. That this Jesus is is more than just a, a carpenter's son. He's more than some dude from Nazareth. And they're starting to realize who he might really be, and this is unnerving to them. That's what their fear is about. And yet, as we're going to see in a few minutes, folks, this unnerving recognition and realization of who Jesus truly is is going to be the key for them and for us to turn fear into faith. So these are the five components in this short but power-packed historical account. You've got the boat, the storm, the miracle, the question, and the response. And so what do we take away from this? What do we learn for our lives today, some 2,000 years later, as we also deal with fear and also deal with relating to Jesus as our Savior? I want to suggest two things to you. Two things that might help us understand our own fear and how we respond to God in the midst of our fear. And here is the first thing this account teaches us, and that is that in times of crisis, we might turn to Jesus, but we don't always trust him. This is going to be helpful. In times of crisis, when we're tempted to fear, we might very well turn to Jesus, but we don't always trust him. I want you to look with me again at something that's going on in the story, something that you might not see at first glance, but becomes apparent when you look a little closer. Look again at verse 38. It's when the storm is in full form and the disciples wake Jesus and use their sarcasm on it. It says, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now get this. And they woke him. Focus on that. They turned from the storm and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Fascinating. In the midst of their fear and panic, they they rightly turned to Jesus. They went from focusing on the storm to focusing on Him. But even though they turned to Him, they didn't trust Him. In fact, the opposite. They asked Him that snarky question of whether He cares or not, doubting and wondering if He could do anything about the circumstances they were in. Latch on to that, folks. They woke Him, thus turning to Him in their time of need, but they didn't trust Him, accusing Him of not caring. 
And I would simply suggest today that you and I do the same. That you and I are very similar to the disciples in whatever storm we're experiencing. There's a tendency of us, a tenacity of our spirit, to want to turn to Jesus. I mean, we wake Him by calling out to Him in prayer and having a quiet time in which we try to get our focus off the cares of the world and onto Him. And though we feel so good and spiritual about doing that, in our heart of hearts, we still aren't really trusting Him. Even though we've turned to Him, we're actually digging our heels in and very covertly questioning Him and what He is up to in our lives. And if we're going to get any further on how to really deal with our fear and turn it into faith, we've got to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, could that be me? Could I be like the disciples, the kind of person who turns, which is a good thing, but doesn't always trust? Oswald Chambers is arguably one of the best devotional writers in the last 200 years of the Western world. Many of you read his my utmost for his highest. Look at what he says at one point in his writings. This is rich stuff. He says, Beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in Him as the Savior of the world while you blaspheme Him by complete complete evidence in your daily life that He is powerless to do anything in and through you. Whoa. You know what he's saying there. He's saying it's so easy for you and I to turn to Jesus, to come to church and go like this, or to go to Bible study and talk a big game, or to throw some money in the plate, or go serve down in neighborhood ministries, or whatever it is we do to to show our, our, our spiritual observance. And yet those things themselves, as good as they are, are very different than you and your heart of hearts trusting Him that will be shown in evidence by your lifestyle and by your ability to trust and not fear. And so the economy is so sluggish to no end, and, and some, if not many of us, are out of work and struggling a bit with our businesses. And so we turn to Jesus by pumping out more prayer from our wheelhouse or increasing our church and worship attendance to show Him the intentions to take Him more seriously. But we've got to ask ourselves as we do that stuff, as we pray all those parachute prayers, as we're free-falling, are we really trusting Him? Or are we like the disciples who turned but then asked doubt-filled questions of him, demonstrating their lack of faith in his ability to save. Or maybe our health is not what we want it to be. We're struggling with an illness or the result of an accident or maybe even years of unwise decisions are catching up to us. So we turn to Jesus. And yet if, instead of quiet and stubborn trust, we question why he doesn't take our affliction away. We're just like the disciples. I mean, almost verbatim, we say, don't you care, God, that I'm perishing? But we turn, but our words do not necessarily connote trust. Or or how about this? Maybe our marriage is all but dead. Uh, The honeymoon was over years ago, and even labeling it on life support would be a generous assessment. So we turn to Jesus, and we get counseling, and we get accountable to others, and we read books, and we join a marriage enrichment class at church, but all the while, deep down in our heart, by the way, where nobody else sees but you and God, deep in your heart, you really don't have faith that He can and will save your marriage. You're more about questioning and doubting Him as you've turned to Him. And that's the point, folks. I know it's hard to hear, but we need to wrestle with this. We're like the disciples. We turn, but we don't trust. We wake Him as we question Him about his agenda for our lives. And when we question him, we're even more frustrated that he doesn't answer our question, just like he did with the disciples. I mean, I love that scene in the boat there. You can picture it. You know, they're shaking him, they wake him up, and, and Jesus, don't you care that we're about to drown? 
He doesn't even answer any of their questions. doesn't even look at them. He looks out on the sea and then performs his miracle. Then when he does look at them, he still doesn't answer their question. He just says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And the point is, folks, is that i got to believe he says the same to you and me today. That every time, and I do this too, I own it with you, every time we turn and then don't trust, the only thing we should expect to hear back from him is, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And so the question that I want us to wrestle with before we move on here is, where are you today with this? Remember that red dot illustration I use when you go to the mall that tells you where you are? Where is your red dot? Could it be that you have turned in your life, questioned, and now have increased fear? Could it be that you're in the good company of the disciples? Where are you today? you got to believe we're struggling with this, many of us. Okay, you say, maybe. Maybe I own that. But now what? What do I do once I've turned, but I'm still not in a real trusting mode? Well, this brings us to the second key thing that we take away from this story, and it's this. And it's the entire point Mark is trying to make as he tells us of this historical account. And that is that recognizing and realizing who Jesus truly is, is what will turn fear into faith. It's true. Recognizing and realizing, those are the two key words there, because through those you will have an experience of his presence and of his goodness. Recognizing and realizing who he really is, we'll get to that in a second, is what can turn fear into faith. So look one last time at this account, and look at how it wraps up in verse 41. This is the disciples' response. It says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, here it is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now focus on that last question of the disciples here. And notice, this is interesting, that they're no longer questioning Jesus' ability to save. That's out of their minds. They're no longer doubting why he was asleep in the boat and whether he cared or not. That's not their concern anymore. No, now they're in what I would label total wonderment mode about who he is and how the man that they just moments before called teacher is now acting like the creator God of the universe who sovereignly controls things with the command of his voice. As I said earlier, they're well on their way here to an understanding that will get fully realized in chapter 8 when they realize he is the Christ, the incarnate Son of God. But at this point, the light is just starting to go on in their heads. They're beginning to recognize and realize who Jesus really is, that he's more than just a man, that, that indeed he might start to be come to you, you know, they might use terms like Savior. They're going to start using terms like Savior and God and the Deliverer and the Redeemer. And please see, folks, it's going to be this realization and this recognition of who He is that will eventually, you can read about it in Acts chapter 2, turn their fear into faith. I mean, the book of Mark is an amazing test case of fear. Throughout almost all the 16 chapters, we see fear in every chapter, and the book doesn't even end with resolve to their fear. But then you flip the pages over to Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and as the realization and recognition becomes complete, and as the Holy Spirit fills them, there's a level of boldness that just blows us away. I like how one commentator nails this when he says it this way. Look up here on the screen. He says, The description of the stilling of the storm in the language of exorcism is intended not simply to demonstrate that Jesus possesses power over nature. Its ultimate purpose is to show that Jesus does what only God can do. 
In the Old Testament, God alone possesses power to quell natural storms such as this. In this story, Mark informs us that the same power and authority belong to Jesus. Whoa! So he's basically saying what they started to realize is that we might have God on our hands here. We might have God involved in our lives. And if that's true, then that's a bit unnerving, and that changes the whole nature of the game. I like how R.T. France actually sums it up. R.T. France says that in this passage here, it's not really as much about revealing Jesus' power as an epiphany of who he really is. An epiphany is simply a revelation, a revealing of the character and nature of God. It's the appearing of God. And this is so much less about Jesus' power and so much more about an epiphany. And folks, the way that you and I have an epiphany today, an experience like that, begins with recognizing and realizing who Jesus really is. It's so vogue today to see Jesus as our buddy. It's so vogue today to say, yeah, 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 I'm into Jesus. Please pause before you say that too quickly. Do you understand the Jesus that you're talking about? The Jesus who is the incarnate Son of God, the creator and maker of all we see and do not see. The Jesus who came to us and said, you are so lost in your sin, you are so utterly lost without me, that without me, you have absolutely no hope of heaven or eternal life. And today, you and I bicker back and forth in our culture about, well, that sounds like he's the only way, and how could that be, and what does that say about Buddhism? I don't care. The reality is, is that he said it. And we have to wrestle with that. The reality is, is that he did claim to be God come in the flesh. And if you ever want to turn your fear into faith, he says, place it in me. Recognize who I am. Go hog wild as we're going to do at our men's retreat. Give it up to him. And as you do that, watch your fear turn into confidence. Watch your life start to get on track with purpose and peace that only he can give you. Carl Bart, a great theologian from about 50, 60 years ago, was once called a God-intoxicated man. And the reason was is because he so focused his theology on Jesus, they said, are you ever going to talk about anything else? And he said, is there anything else? The reality is, folks, is that we're faced here in the presence of God. It's an epiphany and has the power to change their lives, and it will, and ours as well. And so the real question becomes for you and me, how far have we progressed in our understanding and experience of Jesus as the Lord of all creation, of the ruler of what we see and do not see, of the king, not only of the spiritual and physical world, but of your spiritual and physical world, the only one who can govern and rule your life and soul, save and deliver you all the way to heaven. In short, have you had the kind of experience where you've realized who he really is, given your life over to him so that you can go from turning to trusting? Anything less won't deal adequately with your fear. I want to tell you a story of something that happened to me when I was seven years old that relates to this. It was one of the first times I realized um, kind of the full extent of my father as a child, my, when I was a child, of my father and his ability to provide and protect for my family. Uh, we were traveling on a vacation from Ohio. Remember, we used to pack up the car, the station wagon, and, and put all the kids in it and just drive for days and days and days out west. Well, we did that. We ended up in California, and uh, we're staying in hotels every night. And at one point, we're in this hotel in California, and my brother and I, my dad, were unloading the car while my sister and my mom were on the third floor up in the hotel room. 
And when you're unloading the car, you don't all do it together. You know, I'd take a bag up, and then my brother would take a bag up, my dad would take a bag up. We're passing each other in the stairways. And at one point, I got up to the hotel room, and it was just me and my mom up there. I forget where my sister was. My dad and my brother were going to get more bags. And when I got up to the room there, my mom was in the corner of the room looking very, very afraid. And as I looked around, I could see why. There was another man who had entered into the room, and he was obviously very, very drunk. And he had cornered my mom, and he was holding a quarter up, and he was saying to her, I just want to give a quarter to the most beautiful woman in the world. And my mom was terrified by that. And she was saying, go away, and he wouldn't go away, and he's holding this quarter up. And this all happened within about a 30-second period of time. And about what seemed like an eternity, but it was just a few seconds later, my dad walked in holding two suitcases. Now let me tell you a little bit about my dad. My dad is a good man. He's a very smart man. Uh, he is not known for being a prize fighter, so don't picture that. My dad's about my height, about five foot seven. He's not nearly as stocky as me, and he's not a very coordinated man. He made all of his money being a lawyer, so he's really good with his mind, but an athlete he was not. I can still remember when, about a year before I was seven, I went to one of his uh, law firm baseball games, softball games. They ran a softball game there, and they put my dad in the outfield, which should tell you something right there, and, uh, and, and a ball was hit to him. And I can still remember to this day seeing the ball, you know, coming in the outfield. I'm going, Dad, catch it. My dad's running up to catch it. He's got his mitt up like this, and the ball goes right over his head. He wasn't very spatial that way, so he wasn't really good at, at, at guessing that stuff. So that's my dad. That's the guy who walks into that room there with this big drunk threatening my mom. And I will never forget what happens next. My dad drops the two suitcases. He walked right over to the guy, looked up at him, and he said, you leave now. And the man looked at me and said, I'm, I'm just trying to give a court. Dad said, you leave now. And there was a silence there of what seemed like forever. And the man walked out of the room. My dad went over and hugged my mom. And I'm sitting there as a seven-year-old watching this. I felt like I was in the presence of God. I felt like I was in the presence of somebody so powerful that before that I didn't see as very powerful. And that moment on, I realized that though he was only 5'7 and couldn't catch a baseball very well, that this man could protect me and my family. It was a moment in time. You see, some of us need to have that kind of experience with God. We need to realize that God, far more than any earthly father, is the kind of father that can protect and provide for his children. That's what Jesus was trying to communicate in this setting here. He's trying to say, I, I was asleep. I was okay. You guys are freaking out and panicking. You're waking me, wanting me to, to get on board with your agenda. Let's still this thing so that we can talk. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith in who I am and in who my father is? You know, the Old Testament is one big test case in faith. One big test case of the fact that people can sin greatly, but at the end of the day, as it says in Genesis, early on in Genesis 12 and 15, that God is looking for people who are going to trust him and believe in him. And one of the greatest events in the Old Testament is the Exodus event, when Israel's in captivity in Egypt, and uh, they, God pulls a fast one, and through the plagues, and through the parting of the Red Sea, and devouring Pharaoh's army, he delivers his people into the wilderness. And interestingly, in the book of Exodus, as it's reflecting back on the immediacy of the Exodus event in chapter 14, we're going to make two clicks here. Chapter 14, verse 31, uh, this passage appears. Look up here on the screen. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Fascinating. 
for a brief period of time, because Israel will enter into apostasy just a few hundred years later, but for a brief period of time, a few generations, they believed in the Lord. And they believed in his power to protect, to provide for his people. So let's call this the Exodus 1431 challenge for you and for me. What is your response to the fears in your life right now? What is your response to the circumstances that you don't necessarily have control over? It's going to be fear or it's going to be faith, one or the other. If you're in a fearful mode because you've turned and not trusted, it's your time to trust by recognizing and realizing who he really is. He's the Lord of the universe, the creator God, the one who can handle anything and everything that comes your way. But you've got to trust him, and it's your choice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that over and over again, the scriptures, when understood rightly, lead us up to the point of faith. But they can't have faith for us. Only we can do that, empowered by your Holy Spirit. And so, God, I pray that your Spirit would empower each and every person here today to have increased, deeper faith and trust in you as the only one sufficient to handle their lives. Father, I pray that as people trust you today, maybe for the first time in Jesus for salvation, but Lord, maybe even subsequently from times where we have fallen away or backslidden a bit, I pray, God, that as we do turn and now trust, that you turn that fear that we have into faith. And that, Lord, that faith would be sufficient as we place it in Christ. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your greatness. We thank you that all of that has come to us in Christ, in whose name that we pray. And all God's people said together, amen. Hey, God bless you. We'll see you next week.